Section 15 of Heart, a Schoolboy's Journal. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martin. Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Heart, a Schoolboy's Journal by Edmondo de Amicis. Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. April. Spring. Saturday, 1st. The 1st of April. Only three months more. This has been one of the most beautiful mornings of the year. I was happy in school because Coretti told me to come day after tomorrow to see the king make his entrance. We will go with his father, who knows him. Also, my mother had promised to take me the same day to visit the infant asylum in the Corso Valdocco. I was pleased, too, because the little mason is better, and because the teacher said to my father yesterday evening as he was passing, He is doing well. He is doing well. And then it was a beautiful spring morning. From the school windows we could see the blue sky, the trees of the garden all covered with buds, and the wide open windows of the houses, with their boxes and vases already growing green. The teacher did not laugh, because he never laughs, but he was in good humor, so that the wrinkle hardly ever appeared on his brow, and he explained a problem on the blackboard, and jested. And it was plain that he felt a pleasure in breathing the air of the gardens which entered through the open window, redolent with the fresh odor of earth and leaves, which suggested thoughts of country rambles. While he was explaining, we could hear, in a neighboring street, a blacksmith hammering on his anvil, and in the house opposite, a woman singing to lull her baby to sleep. Far away, in the Cernea barracks, the trumpets were sounding. Everyone seemed glad, even Stardy. Presently, the blacksmith began to hammer more vigorously, the woman to sing more loudly, the teacher paused and lent an ear. Then he said slowly as he gazed out of the window, The smiling sky, a singing mother, an honest man at work, boys at study. These are beautiful things. When we left school, we saw that everyone else was cheerful also. All walked in a line, stamping loudly with their feet and humming, as though on the eve of a four-day's vacation. The schoolmistresses were playful, the one with the red feather tripped along behind the children like a schoolgirl. The parents of the boys were chatting together and smiling, and Crossy's mother, the vegetable vendor, had so many bunches of violets in her basket that they filled the whole large hall with perfume. I have never felt so glad as this morning on catching sight of my mother, who was waiting for me in the street, and I said to her as I ran to meet her, Oh, I am happy. What is it that makes me so happy today? And my mother answered smilingly that it was the beautiful season and a good conscience. King Umberto Monday, 3rd At ten o'clock precisely, my father, looking from the window, saw Coretti, the wood-seller, and his son waiting for me in the square, so he said, There they are, Enrico. Go and see your king. I went like a flash. Both father and son were even more alert than usual, 
and they never seemed to me to resemble each other so strongly as this morning. The father wore on his jacket the medal for valor between two commemorative medals, and his mustaches were curled and as pointed as two pins. We at once set out for the railway station, where the king was to arrive at half-past ten. Coretti, the father, smoked his pipe and rubbed his hands. "'Do you know,' said he, "'I have not seen him since the War of Sixty-Six. "'A trifle of fifteen years and six months. First, three years in France, "'and then at Mondavi. "'And here, where I might have seen him, "'I have never had the good luck of being in the city when he came. "'Such a piece of luck!' "'He called the king Umberto like a comrade. "'Umberto commanded the 16th Division.' Umberto was twenty-two years and so many days old. Umberto mounted a horse thus and so. Fifteen years, he said vehemently, quickening his pace. I really have a great desire to see him again. I left him a prince. I see him once more a king. And I too have changed. From a soldier I have become a hawker of wood, and he laughed. If he were to see you, would he remember you? asked his son. He began to laugh. You are crazy, he answered. That's quite another thing. He, Umberto, was one single man. We were thick as flies. And then he never looked at us one by one. We turned into the course Victory Manuel. There were many people on their way to the station. A company of Alpine soldiers passed with their trumpets. Two armed policemen passed by on horseback at a gallop. The day was calm and glorious. "'Yes!' exclaimed the elder Coretti, growing animated. "'It is a real pleasure to me to see him once more, the general of my division. Ah, how quickly I have grown old! It seems as though it were only the other day that I had my knapsack on my shoulders and my gun in my hands. At that affair of the 24th of June, when we were on the point of coming to blows. Umberto was going to and fro with his officers, while the cannon were thundering in the distance, and everyone was gazing at him, saying, May there not be a bullet for him also. I was a thousand miles from thinking that I should soon find myself so near him, in front of the lances of the Austrian Uhlans. Actually, only four paces from each other, boys. That was a fine day. The sky was like a mirror, but so hot. Let us see if we can get in. We had arrived at the station. There was a great crowd, carriages, policemen, carabiners, societies with banners. A regimental band was playing. The older Coretti attempted to enter the portico, but he was stopped. Then it occurred to him to force his way into the front row of the crowd which formed an opening at the entrance, and making way with his elbow, he succeeded in thrusting us forward also. But the shifting crowd flung us hither and thither. The wood-seller got his eye upon the first pillar of the portico, where the police did not allow anyone to stand. "'Come with me,' he said suddenly, dragging us by the hand." and he crossed the empty space in two bounds, and went and planted himself there, with his back against the wall. A police brigadier instantly hurried up, and said to him, You can't stand here. I belong to the 4th Battalion of the 49th, replied Coretti, touching his medal. The brigadier glanced at it and said, 
Stay where you are. Didn't I say so? exclaimed Coretti triumphantly. It's a magic word, that fourth of the forty-ninth. Haven't I the right to see my general with some little comfort? I, who was in that squadron. I saw him close at hand then. It seems right that I should see him close at hand now. And I say, general, he was my battalion commander for a good half hour. For at such times, while the racket was going, he commanded the battalion himself, and not Major Ubrich, by heavens. In the meantime, in the reception room and outside, a great mixture of officers and gentlemen was visible, and in front of the door, the carriages, with the lackeys, dressed in red, were drawn up in a line. Coretti asked his father whether Prince Umberto had carried his sword in his hand when he was in a battle. Certainly he held his sword in his hand, the latter replied, to ward off a blow from a lance, which might strike him as well as another. Ah, those unchained demons! They came down on us like the wrath of God. They swept between the platoons, the squadrons, the cannon, as though tossed by a hurricane, crushing down everything. There was a whirl of light cavalry of Alessandria, of lancers of Foggia, of infantry, of sharpshooters, a pandemonium in which nothing could be understood. I heard the shout, Your Highness! Your Highness! I saw the lowered lances approaching. We discharged our guns. A cloud of smoke hid everything. Then the smoke cleared away. The ground was covered with horses and hewlands, wounded or dead. I turned around and beheld Umberto in our midst, on horseback, gazing tranquilly about with the air of demanding, Have any of my lads received a scratch? And we shouted, Hurrah! right in his face like madmen. Heavens, what a moment that was. Here's the train coming. The band struck up. The officers hastened forward. The crowd stood on tiptoe. Eh, he won't come out in a hurry, said a policeman. They are presenting him with an address now. The elder Coretti was beside himself with impatience. Ah, when I think of it, he said, I always see him there. Of course, there is cholera, and there are earthquakes, and in them too he bears himself bravely. But I always have him before my mind as I saw him, then, among us, with that quiet face. I am sure that he too recalls the fourth of the forty-ninth, even now that he is king, and that it would give him pleasure to have for once, at a table together, all those whom he saw about him at such moments." Now he has generals, and great gentlemen, and courtiers. Then there was no one but us poor soldiers. If we could only exchange a few words alone, our general of twenty-two, our prince, who was entrusted to our bayonets. I have not seen him for fifteen years. Our Umberto, that's what he is. Ah, that music stirs my blood, on my word of honor." An outburst of shouts interrupted him. Thousands of hats rose in the air. Four gentlemen dressed in black got into the first carriage. "'Tis he!' cried Coretti, and stood as though enchanted. Then he said softly, "'By our lady, how gray he has grown!' We all three uncovered our heads. The carriage advanced slowly through the crowd, who shouted and waved their hats. I looked at the elder Coretti. He seemed to me another man.' 
he seemed to have become taller, graver, rather pale, and fastened bolt upright against the pillar. The carriage arrived in front of us, a pace distant from the pillar. Hurrah! shouted many voices. Hurrah! shouted Coretti after the others. The king glanced at his face, and his eye dwelt for a moment on his three medals. Then Coretti lost his head and roared, The fourth battalion of the forty-ninth! The king, who had turned away, turned towards us again, and looking Coretti straight in the eye, reached his hand out of the carriage. Coretti gave one leap forwards and clasped it. The carriage passed on. The crowd broke in and separated us. We lost sight of the elder Coretti, but it was only for a moment. We found him again directly, panting with wet eyes, calling for his son by name and holding his hand on high. His son flew towards him, and he said, Here, little one, while my hand is still warm, and he passed his hand over the boy's face, saying, This is a caress from the king. And there he stood, as though in a dream, with his eyes fixed on the distant carriage, smiling, with his pipe in his hand, in the center of a group of curious people who were staring at him. He's one of the 4th Battalion of the 49th, they said. He is a soldier that knows the king, and the king recognized him, and he offered him his hand. He gave the king a petition, said one more loudly. No, replied Coretti, whirling around abruptly. I did not give him any petition, but there is something else that I would give him if he were to ask it of me. They all stared at him. My blood, he said simply. The Infant Asylum Tuesday, 4th After breakfast yesterday, my mother took me, as she had promised, to the infant asylum in the Corso Valdocco, in order to recommend to the directress a little sister of Percossi. I had never seen an asylum, and I was greatly amused. There were two hundred of them, boy babies and girl babies, and so small that the children in our lower primary schools are men in comparison. We arrived just as they were going into the refectory in two files, where there were two very long tables, with a great many round holes, and in each hole a black bowl, filled with rice and beans, and a tin spoon beside it. On entering, some of the tots grew confused and remained on the floor until the mistress ran and picked them up. Many halted in front of a bowl, thinking it was their proper place, and had already swallowed a spoonful when a mistress came up and said, Go on! And then they went on three or four paces and got down another spoonful, and then advanced again, until they reached their own places after having eaten half a portion more than was due them. At last, by dint of pushing and crying, Make haste! Make haste! They were all got into order, and the prayer was begun. But all those on the inner line, who had to turn their backs on the bowls for the prayer, twisted their heads round to keep an eye on them, lest someone might meddle. They said their prayer thus, with hands clasped and their eyes on the ceiling, but with their hearts on their food. Then they set to eating. Ah, what a charming sight it was! One ate with two spoons, another with his hands. Many picked up the beans one by one and thrust them into their pockets. 
Others wrapped them tightly in their little aprons and pounded them to reduce them to a paste. There were even some who did not eat because they were watching the flies flying, and others coughed and sprinkled a shower of rice all round them. It looked like a poultry yard, but it was fine. The two rows of babies formed a pretty sight, with their hair all tied on the tops of their heads with red, green, and blue ribbons. One teacher asked a row of eight children, Where does rice grow? The whole eight opened their mouths wide, filled as they were with the pottage, and replied in concert in a sing-song, It grows in the water. Then the teacher gave the order, Hands up! And it was delightful to see all those little arms fly up, which a few months ago were in swaddling clothes, and all those little hands waving, which looked like so many white and pink butterflies. Then they all went to play, but first they took their little baskets which were hanging on the wall with their lunches in them. They went out into the garden and scattered round, and got out their provisions, bread, stewed plums, a tiny bit of cheese, a hard-boiled egg, little apples, a handful of boiled vetches, or a wing of chicken. In an instant, the whole garden was strewn with crumbs, as though they had been scattered from their feed by a flock of birds. They ate in all the queerest ways, like rabbits, like rats, like cats, nibbling, licking, sucking. There was one child who held a bit of rye bread hugged closely to his breast, and who was rubbing it with a medlar, as though he were polishing a sword. Some of the little ones crushed in their fists small cheeses which trickled between their fingers like milk and ran down inside their sleeves, and they were utterly unconscious of it. They ran and chased each other with apples and rolls in their teeth like dogs. I saw three of them digging out a hard-boiled egg with a straw, thinking to discover treasures, and they spilled half of it on the ground, and then picked the crumbs up again one by one with great patience, as though they had been pearls. And those who had anything unusual were surrounded by eight or ten others, who stood staring at the baskets with bent heads as you would look at the moon in a well. There were twenty around a mite of a fellow who had a paper horn of sugar, and they were going through all sorts of ceremonies with him for the privilege of dipping their bread in it, and he gave it to some, while, after many prayers, he only let others put a finger in. In the meantime, my mother had come into the garden, and was petting now one and now another. Many hung about her, and even on her back, begging for a kiss, with faces upturned as though to a third story, and with mouths that opened and shut like birds asking for food. One offered her the quarter of an orange, which had been bitten, another a small crust of bread. One little girl gave her a leaf. Another showed her, with all seriousness, the tip of her forefinger, a minute examination of which revealed a microscopic swelling, which had been caused by touching the flame of a candle on the day before. They placed before her eyes, as great marvels, very tiny insects, which I cannot understand their being able to see and catch, the halves of corks, shirt buttons, and flowerets pulled from the vases. One child, with a bandaged head, who was determined to be heard at any cost, stammered out to her some story about a head-over-heels tumble, not one word of which was intelligible. 
another insisted that my mother should bend down, and then whispered in her ear, My father makes brushes. And all this while a thousand accidents were happening here and there, which caused the teachers to hasten up. Children wept because they could not untie a knot in their handkerchiefs. Others disputed, with scratches and shrieks, the halves of an apple. One child, who had fallen face downward over a little bench which had been overturned, wept amid the ruins and could not rise. Before her departure, my mother took three or four of them in her arms, and they ran up from all quarters to be taken also, their faces smeared with the yolk of egg and orange juice. One caught her hands, another her finger, to look at her ring, another tugged at her watch-chain, another tried to seize her by the hair. "'Take care,' the teacher said to her, "'they will tear your clothes all to pieces.' But my mother cared nothing for her dress, and she continued to kiss them, and they pressed closer and closer to her. Those who were nearest, with their arms held out as though they were desirous of climbing, the more distant, trying to make their way through the crowd, and all crying, Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. At last she succeeded in escaping from the garden, and they all ran and thrust their faces through the railings to see her pass, and to put their arms through to greet her, once more offering her bits of bread, bites of apple, cheese rinds, and all screaming together, Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Come back tomorrow, come again. As my mother made her escape, she passed her hand once more over those hundreds of tiny outstretched hands, as over a garland of living roses, and finally reached the street in safety, covered with crumbs and spots, rumpled and disheveled, with one hand full of flowers and her eyes swelling with tears, and happy as though she had come from a festival. And inside there was still audible a sound like the twittering of birds saying, Goodbye, goodbye, come again, lady. Gymnastics, Wednesday, 5th. As the weather stays fine, they have made us pass from indoor gymnastics to gymnastics with apparatus in the garden. Garonne was in the principal's office yesterday when Nellie's mother, that blonde woman dressed in black, came in to get her son excused from the new exercises. Every word cost her an effort, and as she spoke, she held one hand on her son's head. He is not able to do it, she said to the principal. But Nellie seemed hurt at this exclusion from the apparatus, at having this added humiliation imposed upon him. You will see, Mama, he said, that I shall do like the rest. His mother gazed at him in silence, with an air of pity and affection. Then she remarked in a hesitating way, I fear lest his companions... What she meant to say was, lest they should make sport of him. But Nellie replied, They will not do anything to me, and then there is Garonne. It is enough for him to be present to prevent their laughing. So he was allowed to come. The teacher with the wound on his neck, who was with Garibaldi, led us at once to the vertical bars, which are very high, and we had to climb to the very top, and stand upright on the cross-plank. De Rossi and Coretti went up like monkeys. Even little Precossi mounted briskly, 
in spite of the fact that he was hindered by that jacket which extends to his knees, and in order to make him laugh while he was climbing, all the boys repeated his constant expression, "'Excuse me! Excuse me!' Stardy puffed, turned as red as a turkey-cock, and set his teeth until he looked like a mad dog, but he would have reached the top at the expense of bursting, and he actually did get there, and so did Nobis, who, when he reached the summit, assumed the attitude of an emperor. But Votini slipped back twice, notwithstanding his fine new suit with blue stripes, which had been made expressly for gymnastics. In order to climb the more easily, all the boys had daubed their hands with resin, which they call colophony, and as a matter of course, it is that trader of a garofi who provided everyone with it, selling it at a saldo, the paper hornful, and turning a pretty penny. Then it was Garonne's turn, and up he went, chewing away at his bread as though it were nothing out of the common, and I believe that he would have been capable of carrying one of us up on his shoulders, for he is as muscular and strong as a young bull. After Garonne came Nelly. No sooner did the boys see him grasp the bars with those long, thin hands of his than many of them began to laugh and to sing. But Garonne crossed his great arms on his breast and darted round a glance which was so expressive, which so clearly said that he did not mind dealing out half a dozen punches, even in the master's presence, that they all ceased laughing on the instant. Nelly began to climb. He tried hard, poor little fellow, his face grew purple. He breathed with difficulty, and the perspiration poured from his brow. The master said, Come down. But he would not. He strove and persisted. I expected every moment to see him fall headlong, half dead. Poor Nelly. I thought, what if I had been like him, and my mother had seen me? How she would have suffered, poor mother. And, as I thought of that, I felt so tenderly toward Nelly that I could have given anything to help him climb those bars, or boost him from below without being seen. Meanwhile, Garonne, de Rossi, and Coretti were saying, Up with you, Nelly! Up with you! Try! One effort more! Courage! And Nelly made one more violent effort, uttering a groan as he did so, and found himself within two spans of the plank. Bravo! shouted the others. Courage! One dash more! And behold, Nelly was clinging to the plank. All clapped their hands. Bravo! said the teacher. But that will do now. Come down. But Nelly wished to go to the top, like the rest, and after a little exertion, he succeeded in getting his elbows on the plank, then his knees, then his feet. At last he stood upright, panting and smiling, and gazed at us. We began to clap again, and then he looked into the street. I turned in that direction, and through the plants which cover the iron railing of the garden, I caught sight of his mother, passing along the sidewalk without daring to look. Nelly came down, and we all made much of him. He was excited and rosy, his eyes sparkled, and he no longer seemed like the same boy. At the close of school, when his mother came to meet him, and inquired with some anxiety, as she embraced him, "'Well, my poor son, how did it go? How did it go?' All his comrades replied, "'He did well! He climbed like the rest of us! He's strong, you know, he's active, he does exactly like the others!' 
and the joy of that woman was a sight to see. She tried to thank us and could not. She shook hands with three or four, patted Garonne, and carried off her son, and we watched them for a while, walking fast, talking and gesticulating, both perfectly happy, as though no one were looking at them. End of section 15